Hebrews 12, 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Well, this is a section devoted to the final instructions on running the spiritual race. We will look this morning at verses 12 to 14, and Lord willing, the rest of the verses perhaps next week. But this is the next logical section, verses 12 to 17. Before we hear God from the first part, let me outline the entire portion. In verses 12 and 13, the preacher returns to his comparison of perseverance in the faith with running a marathon. These verses are taken from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and following, and I would highly recommend that sometime this afternoon or perhaps this evening, you read and, and think about the chapter after hearing the sermon. Like so many times earlier in this book, what the preacher does is take an Old Testament passage and expound and apply the verses to his hearers. So after verses 12 and 13 illustrate another need in this race, verse 13 states the same truth in ethical or moral terms. In other words, what was described in verse 12 and verse 13 is commanded in straightforward manner in verse 14. And then this is made practical in verses 15 to 17. So this morning, let's look at the illustration and the ethical demands necessary to run the race of faith all the way to a successful end. Now, it's been a few weeks since we were in this chapter, so let me very quickly set the context for you. Let me remind you of the line of thinking that the preacher is following here. This portion of Hebrews is a call to endure in faith all the way to the end of life so that we actually reach heaven. The great cloud of witnesses who has, by the grace of God, crossed the finish line is sitting in heaven and they are encouraging us to keep on running. And Jesus, who gave us this faith initially and promises to perfect it, he urges us to look to him both for continuing strength and an example. If we do this, we will join him eternally in the presence of God. Difficulties of all kind will come. 
and we need to think rightly about them so that we don't quit but keep going. There's only salvation at the end. There isn't salvation in the journey. <laughs> it's vital to remember that every difficulty in our race of faith is discipline from our Heavenly Father because we still sin, because we're weak. God chastises us. He trains us. And this is because he wants us <laughs> to run to the end. And so he pursues us with reproof. And this proves our sonship. It shows that we are truly sons of God. It should also grow our respect for God. And all of these disciplines are for our good, and it results in, and this is important for our sermon today, it, all of these disciplines result in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 11. Now, because all of this is true, as we think rightly, so we should act accordingly. Now, what would that be? Well, these verses explain how to respond to God's training regimen. First, he tells us in picture form what to do in verses 12 and 13. And then he tells us the exact same thing in command form, verse 14. So first, there is a call to strengthen ourselves. That's verses 12 and 13. Then there will be a call to strive for peace, and then a call to strive for holiness. And that's the simple outline. First, a call to strengthen ourselves. Let me read verses 12 and 13 again. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, distance runners understand the pictures here. After many miles, the arms grow tired of pumping and they begin to droop. The knees that once moved straight ahead begin to wobble. And small bumps in the path seem to suddenly grow in size. It's hard not to stagger. It's a challenge to stay on the path. And all of that is understandable because running long distances takes a toll on the body. It wears it down and even begins at times to damage it. In fact, if these weaknesses aren't remedied, they might even become dislocations. A runner with a leg out of joint can't, doesn't, keep going. He has to stop. He can't complete the race. And that, of course, in this picture would be catastrophic because the reward is only found in crossing the finish line. So the preacher wants his hearers to know that that answer, that the answer to these aches and pains is not 
to stop running. That's not what he urges him to do. And that is, of course, always a temptation. We say to ourselves, this is too hard. This hurts. I'm hurt. Can it really be worth it? I can't keep going. Or in some cases worse, I won't keep going. Now, the answer to this self-destructive talk is instead to do what we're commanded here. It's to strengthen ourselves so we can complete the race. Notice the verbs that the preacher uses. Lift, strengthen, make straight, not quit. Not take a really long rest of the life breather. Not find another sport to engage in. No, lift, strengthen, make straight. All for the purpose of being healed or strengthened. You see, he's calling them to use certain exercise treatments to help them complete their spiritual marathon. He tells them, I want you to do spiritual physical therapy. So what does lifting, strengthening, and make straight mean in the spiritual life? What do they correspond to? Well, the exercises to overcome weak, incomplete running are now given in plain terms in verse 14. And they're summed up in these two activities so that their spiritual strength will be enhanced and they will be made well so they can complete the race. So next in our outline, and the first of these exercises or therapies is a call to strive for peace. See that very clearly at the beginning of verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. Now physical therapy, for any of you have had it before, you know sometimes it can be quite painful. Muscles and ligaments may not want to go where they're, where they're being pushed to or may not want to do what's being asked of them. And so it is in the spiritual life of the pilgrim of faith. But our preacher here, he doesn't pull any punches. He says that the spiritual exercises he is calling them and us to will take exertion they will take sweat, perhaps even bring pain. The word he uses is strive, or in some of your translations, it is pursue. It means to earnestly endeavor after something. It's often used in a negative sense to mean persecute. So it's an aggressive continuing action. This man is describing what we would call a really tough workout. It's to go after something strongly. So he's not saying, you know, I know this has gotten really tough, so what I'm asking you to do now is pretty much slow down, almost stop, walk, jog, trot. No, that's not what he's saying. He's urging them to an aggressive, great effort. And, and what 
does this pursuit pursue? Peace with all men, according to the text. The way of spiritual training is always toward peace. It strives to live in harmony and friendship with others. It works against conflict and violence. And it is to be done with everyone. First and foremost, no doubt, with the fellow believers who were hearing this call when this was first read. And, and now, as we hear it explained. Because every true believer has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, they must live in peace with each other, and they can live in peace with each other. But peace is also to be pursued with those who don't have faith, and perhaps even make themselves to be our enemies. So this is a command to the practical work of being a peacemaker. This is not theoretical peace. This is a real life getting along that they are called to here. <coughs> Striving isn't merely wishing or hoping. It's not about an academic or theological pursuit, but the actual work of striving after real life peace with others. Now, as we consider this effort at peace, it's important to remember at least two things. And the first is this. Peaceful relationships characterize believers. Peaceful relationships characterize believers. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Being generally likable or working for the UN Commission on Peace is not how we get right with God. But being a peacemaker demonstrates that we are right with God. It is not the foundation of our faith, but it is always a fruit of true saving faith. Divisive persons are dangers to the church and to themselves. And a person who always is making trouble and not peace does not fit the biblical description of a man or woman of faith. And so Paul says in Romans 16, 17, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. He goes on to say in Galatians that the works of the flesh include strife, fits of anger, dissensions, and divisions. And then he follows with, those who keep on practicing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The believer, he has the spirit whose fruit in part is peace. And so the Bible truth is that peaceful relationships characterize believers. No, they're not perfect. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, in the next life it will be better. But believers are peaceable, peacemaking people. 
The second thing we need to remember, and the last point under this call to strive for peace, is that peaceful relationships are something to work toward, and they're not always obtainable or attainable. Not everyone wants or is also striving after peace. Romans 12:18 comes to us realistically in a fallen world when it commands this. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, it's not always possible. As much as it depends on you, you do your part. Live at peace with all men. So the command is not to live peaceably with all men at all costs. That's not what the Bible command is. The duty is to what? Strive. It's to work toward it. It's to try. It's to work hard after it. God doesn't ask you to guarantee peace. He asks you to work for it, and perhaps by His grace He will grant it. You have to do your part where God's not going to do his. He's established means to ends ordinarily, and you need to seek peace. If you do that, God may well grant it. If he doesn't, you will know that you have strengthened yourself nonetheless, though, for the race of faith by striving after peace. So that's the first exercise that we need to regularly pursue if we're going to be strengthened to finish this race called the Christian life. The second one is this. There's a call to strive for holiness. There's a call to strive for peace. And now you see plainly also in the verse, strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what is holiness here? The word is used in many ways in Scripture. But general synonyms would be sanctification, or righteousness, or other times good works. But in the context of the Christian life, which is the context of this chapter, there are two foundational uses of this concept of holiness. The first is the holiness that comes to our account. You know, that ethical record that we have before God. And as believers, we have the righteousness of Christ applied to it. We call that justification. This means that our sins are forgiven and we are considered positively righteous, positively holy. In fact, perfectly holy. As holy as Jesus. Why? Because Christ's perfect life is counted as ours. A good basic text for that doctrine is 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says that Christ took our sin so that we might gain his righteousness. This is the great exchange that explains our salvation. How can a sinner, under the burden and weight of sin, how can he become right with God? By placing his sins on Jesus and by taking the perfection of Jesus to himself. The great exchange. <clears throat> but holiness here is not this justification. 
Why not? Well, in part because justification comes by faith alone, not by work, not by striving, not by pursuing. You don't strive for that holiness. But believers do strive, and they are constantly called to pursue the holiness of sanctification. And this is the second main use of the word in the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, remember, every sinner that comes into the world has two problems. They have a bad record before God, and they have a bad heart. And when salvation comes, it solves both of those problems. It's not just a matter of well, clean up the record, but their life is unchanged. It's not just, oh, work Jesus in them, but oh, their record is still filthy. No, if you are to stand before God in the final day and be approved by him in Christ, you must have your bad record and your bad heart both completely taken care of. So you need justification and sanctification. There is no salvation where supposedly your record's clean, but your life is unchanged. That's nonsense. You will be condemned on the final day. You need both. You have a bad heart, a bad record. Both have to be fixed. Jesus is the answer to both. The holiness of Jesus Christ is the answer to both. So God applies Christ's righteousness to our record. That's the one-time act of justification. And he also applies... Christ's righteousness to ourselves, our souls, our hearts, our our inner men and women. That's the process of sanctification worked by the Holy Spirit. God both imputes Christ's righteousness to us and imparts it to us. He doesn't just take the righteousness of Christ and apply it to the sin sheet. He also writes it in your He cleanses the soul. He cleans the conscience. But it is only in sanctification that we pursue holiness. Our justification is perfect. There's nothing left to pursue. But our sanctification there is plenty. If you know me well at all, you'll say, Pastor Ron, you have a lot of pursuing left to do. Yes, I do. So do you. We have lots of striving left to do. It's only in sanctification that we pursue holiness. That is where we work along with God. Yes, from his initiating and enabling grace, we're not equal co-workers with him there. And it's out of that that we strive for holiness. So this second call is a call to the practical work of being a holy person. Seek peace, strive after it, work really hard for it, and work just as hard for holiness. Now let me give you three quick points about this as well. First of all, just like peacemaking characterizes believers, practical holiness characterizes believers as well. Practical holiness characterizes believers. Jesus, again, in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's striving. That's pursuing. 
for they shall be satisfied. There's the promise. They will be made holy. Those with saving faith always have the accompanying grace of holiness. It encourages them that they may, in fact, genuinely, they really do bear the image of Christ. They really are a son of God. It assures them that they will cross the finish line, gain the reward, enter heaven, see the face of God. Christians aren't perfect. You know that bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, yeah, that's true. They're, I'm not sure the word just is right, but yes, Christians aren't perfect. They are forgiven. But a fuller biblical statement would be, Christians aren't perfect, they're forgiven, and growing in holiness, Amen. pursuing righteousness. Oh, it, it, it may seem very slow. It may seem that you're sliding back more than you're sliding for, walking forward. But the fact that you're still wrestling means you're winning the battle against sin. The fact that you are even concerned about it is part of it. That's part of the striving. So that's the first thing. Practical holiness, not perfect holiness, not yet. One day, glorification, but practical, real-life holiness now characterizes believers. Secondly, practical holiness is something to work toward and won't be perfected in this life. It's a lot like peacemaking. The holiness of justification is perfect. The holiness of sanctification is imperfect in this life. Often it's very imperfect. And that's why we strive. That's why we pursue. We keep trying to lift my and your drooping hands. It's why we try to strengthen our own and each other's weak knees. So don't believe anyone who tells you that Christians this side of heaven can be perfectly holy. That's a falsehood that if you drink it in, will wrongly discourage you. If that could really happen, why would Christ, in Matthew 5, 6, characterize faith as hungering and thirsting for it? Oh, a real Christian doesn't hunger and thirst for faith, or, or for, for righteousness because he's already got it fully. Nonsense. In this life, Christians will always be hungering and thirsting. They'll always be pursuing it. But I would also urge you, don't believe the opposite. Don't believe the opposite error. That you can get into heaven without any practical, inworked, imparted, indwelling righteousness. And that's our third and final point here. Practical holiness is necessary if we're to reach heaven. Practical holiness characterizes believers, maybe very imperfect. So it's something to keep working on. But it's necessary if we are to reach heaven. This is very plain in our text. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Double negative for emphasis. You can't get to heaven without some degree of God in worked practical holiness. There must be a change in your life or your claim to justification is empty. Holiness is absolutely necessary if we are to see the Lord. 
Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, agrees with this in Matthew 5, 8, where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Perhaps the author had that, those words in mind as he wrote this. Again, as I have said many times, this holiness is not how we earn heaven. <laughs> there is no merit in any of your post-conversion good works. They're all imperfect. They all need to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't improve your justification. But they're pleasing to God. He uses them for good. And they're part of your sanctification. They show that you really belong to him. That you have the character of God and Jesus in you. That you don't have the character of the devil any longer in you. Striving for holiness shows your faith is true. Saving faith and not the useless faith of the wicked devils. They believe God exists. You do too. That won't get you into heaven. So this effort at strengthening our weak running is truly necessary. We must finish the race, and we do this through efforts at peace and holiness. Now let me give you two uses, and then we'll be done. First, this is very obviously a call to the church, to our church, to live in relationships of peace and purity with each other. This is a call to live in relationships of peace and purity with each other. So let me ask you a few very simple questions. Are you actively working at peace? You know, peace in your marriage, peace with your unreasonable children, peace with your even more unreasonable co-workers or boss? Are you actively working at peace with that brother or sister who rubs you the wrong way at church? What concrete steps are you taking? Remember the word was strive. So what concrete steps are you taking? What exercises are you doing daily to be a peacemaker? And I, I leave those questions with you as I ask them of myself. And of course, the second set of questions is obvious. Are you actively working at holiness? You know, holiness of thought, word, and deed, both toward God and toward men. Again, what concrete steps are you taking in your striving after holiness? You know, some of us think that because we wish to be holier, we're striving. Wishing ain't striving. Hoping isn't pursuing. Those are just daydreams. Those are ways to fool yourself, to think you're serious about being holy. And guarantees of failure, if that's all you have, are just fond dreams of someday being a better person. Striving doesn't consist in even praying 
that sins will disappear and sanctification come. Oh yes, praying is part of the striving, no doubt about it. <laughs> praying to be made holier is hard work, and that's definitely striving. But it's only part of striving. So if your striving up till now has been made, it has, has been made up of only hopes and wishes and praying and nothing else, you need to round out the rest of your striving doctrine, your exercise, your physical therapy, by seeing what the Bible says about how to put legs on this, how to actually build yourself up and strengthen yourself and exercise your faith in certain ways that lead you toward holiness. It's things like erecting fences, learning to be peaceable, and on and on the list could go. To strive for holiness is to aggressively chart out and follow a spiritual exercise routine of putting off sin and putting on righteousness. So the simple question is, are you striving after peace and holiness? And our second and final point or use is that in Christ, peace and purity find their source. In Christ, peace and purity find their sources. The intricate interweaving in Hebrews of themes and words once you study the book, is, is truly amazing. Um, yeah, this is God's book. There's no question about it. And he prepared a genius man to be able to publish it. Think about, you remember, most of you anyway, remember those sermons we had about that really, really insignificant man, Melchizedek. This is back in chapter 7. We all thought that the important person back in Genesis in some of those chapters was Abraham. We find out now that actually the important person is Melchizedek. Why? Because he was a type of Jesus Christ, and he was in a number of different ways. But in chapter 7, he tells us that Melchizedek's name, translated, means king of righteousness, and also, as king of Salem, he is the king of peace. What a coincidence! Melchizedek is a king of peace and righteousness, of peace and holiness. Well, that's not a shock at all, actually, is it? Because Christ, who is the fulfillment of Melchizedek, <coughs> contains all peace and all holiness. In him is the fullness of these things. And so he is the one who brings, who truly brings peace and righteousness to his people. He's the king of grace. You see, in the Lord, in God, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, Psalm 85. Righteousness and ki peace kiss each other. And Christ is God indeed, who joined with a true humanity, brings peace and holiness to his elect. According to Isaiah 9-7, how does that Christ, that God-man, how does he govern his people? 
Well, it says he does it with unending peace, justice, and righteousness. Isaiah 32, 17 predicted that when the Lord's Spirit was poured out, the effect of righteousness would be peace, quietness, and trust or faith forever. You see, Jesus Christ is the source of our faith. He is the source of our salvation, part of which consists in these two blessings, peace and righteousness. He works obedience in his people to keep his commandments, according to Isaiah 48, 18. And the promise is that when we pay attention to his command, then our peace is like a river and our righteousness is like the waves of the sea. Do you see these two concepts are all throughout scripture bound together and they're bound together in the person of God and Jesus Christ. And we experience this and when we live under the rule of Christ in the kingdom of God, we find it's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Christian, there is hope for you in trying to answer this call to strive or pursue. It's a command from the Christ who also supplies his word and spirit and grace so that you can fulfill it. What he commands, he gives. And all of this to God's glory and the good of men and your sure and final salvation. Let's pray.